1979, the psychologist Dorothy Tenov wrote a book entitled Love and Limerence, The Experience of Being in Love. The term limerence was coined by Dr. Tenov for this book, as there wasn't a succinct English word that accurately or fully described the effects she'd discovered in her research work over the preceding two decades. Namely, there wasn't a word for a type of adoration and borderline or literal obsession with another person, which can bring with it a full range of emotions and internal experiences, from euphoria to despair to manic happiness to a desire for vengeance when these feelings are not reciprocated or are not reciprocated in the way the person experiencing limerence would prefer. Limerence has, in the years since, as it's become a topic of scientific interest and inquiry, at times been described as the nightmare version of love. But part of what makes it such an interesting topic of investigation is that there would seem to be hints of limerence in many of our relationships and crushes and even fandoms, as this aspect of the broader concept of love or appreciation has been linked to certain brain patterns and behaviors that we can now point at and say, here's what's causing this particular feeling, and here's why we feel it, which is not easy to do with something more vague and subjective, like the fuzzier concept of love in general. Research has connected limerence to attachment theory, which posits that a great many of the psychological stresses we face are connected to the creation and dissolution of various sorts of relationships in our lives, but it's also been connected to the process of self-actualization, subconscious processes related to randiness and addiction, and to some of the underlying mechanisms that show up in people who suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorders. In those latter cases, people experiencing measurable levels and duration of limerence meaning they felt obsessed with someone long enough that they were able to be tested on their state of mind, so it's not a short-term, ignorable thing, have shown lower-than-usual levels of serotonin in their brains, which is similar to people who deal with obsessive-compulsive disorders. Likewise, the reward systems in one's brain can be tied up with the reciprocity, or perceived reciprocity, from the target of our obsession. We feel good or bad based on whether or not our crush likes us back, for instance, which can lead to an addiction-like cycle where that person's attention and affection is necessary for us to feel just baseline okay, and the amount of attention and affection we require to maintain that baseline can increase, much like the quantity of a drug we take might increase as we become more addicted, requiring larger and larger hits to avoid crashing and going through withdrawal symptoms. Sometimes, limerence is tied up with physical desires, sometimes not. Sometimes limerence is connected to other seemingly disconnected anxieties, stresses, and conditions, like depression or trauma, sometimes not. Limerence-related research today is typically related to the downsides of limerence, and there's an ongoing effort to present it for potential addition to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, Though importantly, at the moment, the majority of the medical community considers this to be more of an organizational term, 
a way to look at a bundle of attributes in a particular way all at once, rather than a true diagnostic label. That said, as a method of looking at that even larger collection of attributes that we often gesture at and call love, the concept of limerence may be helpful in that it's made up of a more measurable, objective collection of components that we can actually see in people's brains in a fairly consistent way, based on fairly consistent triggers. It's predicated on chemicals and systems that we have a means of measuring reliably and consistently, as opposed to a concept like love that means something somewhat different, or wildly different, to every single person who uses the term. What I'd like to talk about today is marriage and other sorts of relationships, all of which are concepts that are quite subjective in terms of what they mean, what shape they take, and how seriously people choose to take them. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg Business Week, and it's entitled... China's divorce spike is a warning to rest of locked-down world. This piece was published at the end of March 2020, and it addresses some of the repercussions of the fairly hardcore lockdown that was implemented in some parts of China as part of a larger effort to reduce infection numbers related to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which seems to have started in the Chinese city of Wuhan before spreading throughout the rest of the country and then worldwide soon after. China has been watched closely, though, because although it is substantially different from many other countries, it also provides us with a rare opportunity to see what the future might hold elsewhere, as other countries reach a point where they can consider removing some lockdown rules and infrastructure and allow something approximating normal life to return. If official numbers are to be believed, and there's good reason not to fully believe them, and at minimum to take them with a spoonful or two of salt. But if we can glean something from the Chinese government's official numbers, their rate of new infections have diminished greatly, to the point where, when new infections emerge, they have structures and policies in place to handle that, to separate infected folks from the rest of the population, and to try to find out who else may have been infected by them in the meantime so they can also partition those people from their uninfected peers. As a result, they've begun to open their economy back up, allowing some people to go about their more or less normal lives, allowing stores to open, shipments to be made, and so on. This is considered to be a fairly important moment, as how well or badly the Chinese economy fares internally may tell us something about what to expect elsewhere when the same begins to happen. And as of the day I'm recording this, a few states here in the United States, against the advice of medical experts and most public officials, not to mention the desires of the majority of their constituents, according to polls, have begun to open things back up as well. At the moment, we don't know what the results of those smaller experiments will be. And we also don't have any idea what will happen when economies begin to open back up countrywide, except by looking at China and keeping tabs on what happens there. So far, it's been a pretty mixed bag, with some reopened industries, like the 600 or so movie theaters that have been given permission to open back up, reclosing 
almost immediately, the government backtracking on the decision to allow those theaters to open before they could even see if the people would show up, given the opportunity. Economically, then, we can potentially learn a lot from what's happening in China, allowing us to avoid some of their early missteps, and potentially either reopening some types of business sooner than planned, based on emergent best practices that we see working there, or in some cases keeping certain types of business closed when it becomes clear that there's no truly safe way to make such a business work right now, lacking reliable tests, treatments, and perhaps even vaccines for the novel coronavirus, which as of late April 2020 is still the case for this particular pandemic. We do not have reliable tests, treatments, and vaccines in place quite yet. One other set of stats being watched, though, is the rate at which people are filing for divorce. As the barriers come down and people are able to leave their homes again, legal entities that formalize or nullify marriages are reopening for business as part of that initial wave of reopening. This piece is about that, and how, despite the country only making national figures for divorce available on a yearly basis, media reports from individual regions are pointing at an emerging divorce boom post-shutdown, and trend watchers are expecting, based both on anecdote and these regional Chinese figures, that the same will probably happen elsewhere as well. The rationale behind that expectation is that the stresses associated with a pandemic-instigated lockdown may apply new and more potent pressures to relationships than they've ever experienced before. What's more, people's routines are upset. They're spending a whole lot more time than usual with their partners. And the amount of resources available, including space, are a lot more finite for many people. A quote from that Bloomberg piece from the director of a registration center for marriages in a city called Miluau in the Hunan province of China explained it as such. Quote, Trivial matters in life led to the escalation of conflicts, and poor communication has caused everyone to be disappointed in marriage and make the decision to divorce. End quote. A Chinese divorce lawyer, quoted in the story, reported that his divorce law practice had 25% more cases than usual in the early weeks following the easing of the lockdown, and this is on top of the already increasing number of divorces each year, that trend beginning in 2003, when divorce laws were liberalized in the country, and increasing each year to a peak of about 4.5 million divorces in 2018. There were only 4.15 million in 2019, and Chinese authorities were reportedly hoping that those numbers would decrease from that point forward, having maybe hit a ceiling. Chinese officials were also, apparently, hoping that the lockdown would lead to a baby boom, since birth rates in the country, for a variety of reasons, many of them stemming from past government intervention, have been decreasing, reaching a record low in recent years of about 1.6 children per woman, which is well under the 2.1 children per woman that's generally thought of as the replacement rate necessary to keep a nation's population numbers steady. So anything below that, and the population over time starts to go down. There's a chance that there will be a baby boom alongside the apparent divorce boom, but the encouragement coming from government entities telling people to aim for this outcome wasn't exactly inspiring, apparently. One municipality's government put up posters that said, As you stay home during the outbreak, the second child policy has been loosened 
so creating a second child is also contributing to your country. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not exactly baby-making language to me. The trouble with a lot of these numbers, though, is that they're mostly speculation at this point. We have some actual data from local governments and other entities, and we have anecdote and assumption. Everyone knows someone who's been having marriage problems as a result of this pandemic. But just as we won't know the consequences for U.S. states that have opened up early for several weeks, minimum, due to the rate at which the disease spreads and is detectable, and the amount of time it takes for norms to be established and recorded, it's also unlikely that we'll know the true relationship and familial impact of the shutdown worldwide until quite a bit later, until we've been able to assess the numbers and potentially gauge the rationales behind things like divorces, which will be tricky, I think, as I'm guessing a lot of the issues that were amplified by the pandemic were pre-existing rather than emerging out of nowhere. So there's a chance that even when we have real legit data on this, some of the documented divorces may have happened regardless with time. We do have some data from previous pandemics, however, which tell us that in Hong Kong, folks who experienced the full brunt of the SARS pandemic back in 2002 and 2003 were still suffering from elevated stress and anxiety levels a year after the pandemic had subsided. Divorce within the Hong Kong general population was up 21% in 2004 compared to 2002. And that's after a terrifying but comparably much smaller pandemic, which infected not quite 2,000 people in Hong Kong and killed just under 300. It's impossible to directly compare pandemics, and there's even reason to believe, potentially, that far larger scary events can be easier to psychologically get past and set aside because the scale is out of proportion with ground-level human experience, to the point that we don't take these things as seriously as we might take a single death of a person that we know, or a smaller, more local, seemingly more directly terrifying illness or other disaster that's been impacting us directly. Counterintuitively, then, bigger, more abstract-seeming pandemics, like a sprawling global pandemic of a scale that's difficult to casually grok, and bring down to a personal level, may have fewer long-term consequences, psychologically, than a smaller neighborhood-level disaster, despite the latter case being orders of magnitude less destructive. And this is the result of a quirk of the human mind that influences the way that we see the world, and what causes we contribute to, and many other behaviors, including whether or not we store full emotional context information alongside our other memories. That said, that divorce rates and even overall anxiety levels remained that much higher that long after the SARS pandemic was taken care of in Hong Kong perhaps tells us something about what we might expect when the COVID-19 lockdowns are finished and people are finally able to go out into the world again relatively safely. The increased quantity of so-called corona divorces, though, are just one aspect of a larger story here. Yes, some people are realizing that their legally binding partnership is not all that they thought it would be, or the cracks that they'd already noticed but had chosen to ignore have become perceptually wide enough that they can no longer ignore them. Perhaps others are putting their relationships into the context of life and death for the first time, and that, in turn, is triggering a change in what is important and what's not 
and how they want to be, living their lives, the actions that they take based on that. There are also reports of the opposite, though, of people mending fences with partners they intended to leave, and folks exploring previously unexplored facets of a relationship, using the time together to learn more about the person that they're committed to, and liking what they find, sharing hobbies, innermost feelings, vulnerabilities, finally having the opportunity to dig a little deeper and with positive results. That said, this latter category is a lot more difficult to track with any real resolution because of the nature of the things that we're measuring. Divorces are generally government-tracked, legal events, so we have actual numbers on that, and defined beginning and end periods to look at. Interpersonal moments, on the other hand, no matter how potent and meaningful they might be, are unlikely to be reported unless they are self-reported in some way. And although there's room for anecdote to gesture at what might be happening on a larger scale, you can't really compare collections of anecdote to real accounting using real numbers. They're very different things. So we've got hard numbers for divorces, but only soft assumptions for improving relationships, which is almost certainly influencing the way that these two sides of the same coin are being reported upon. Also being reported upon, in the same soft data, mostly anecdotal way, is the emergence of corona boyfriends and corona girlfriends. Basically, someone that you keep in touch with, often at a distance, and connect and flirt with in the same way you might with a partner. But the implication being that this may or may not turn into something more after the pandemic has ended, because many of these relationships are long distance, or in practice, long distance, because of lockdowns. So these are connections that have unknown futures, and as such, may lead to different outcomes than more traditional connections of the same kind. The expectations seem to be different because of the context in which they've been formed. Which is interesting, because of what it might imply about what sorts of relationships we come to value, how we build such connections in the future, and the paths romantic relationships in particular take in the coming years, as we adjust to a world in which pandemics can occur and potentially reoccur with little warning. A concept worth knowing about when it comes to the discussion of relationships in general is amatonormativity, a term coined by a philosophy professor named Elizabeth Brake to refer to societal assumptions about romance. In particular, that society prioritizes romance that funnels into and orbits around the ideal of marriage, and as a result, society tends to pressure people to move in a particular direction, to build relationships of a particular kind, and to assume a particular relationship path, even when doing so might not be ideal for the people involved. It's the default, regardless. This overarching framework, the theory goes, is enforced not because anyone is intending to be mean and not because of some giant marriage-related conspiracy industrial complex, but rather because sorting and organizing ourselves in this way has been built into a lot of our societal structures, our laws, and our traditions and love stories and rituals. And the basis of all of these norms is that most people will aim for romantic, sexual, monogamous, lifelong relationships. Now, it may or may not be obvious based on your exposure to different groups of people. But not all of these implied default relationship properties may make sense for everyone. Asexual and aromantic people, for instance, might chafe under the tenets of this type of relationship, which prescribes romance and sex as part of how relationships work. People who are ethically non-monogamous, likewise, may find the implication that anyone who does not adhere to the tenets of monogamy 
is bad or wrong in some way, offensive. This concept arguably also applies to the assumption that relationships will be heterosexual in nature, which is something that's increasingly not the case in practice, but in many places around the world, and in very recent memory across most of the world, the expectation that a marriage will involve one man and one woman, with all relationships ending up at that point eventually, has also been part of the cultural orthodoxy when it comes to relationships. There are a lot of historical reasons why marriage, and the common formulation of marriage that we have today, has been so popular. But it would not be accurate to say that marriage of the kind that we have today is an ancient institution, and thus something that we do because it's natural or a fundamental component of civilization. A 2014 paper entitled The Suffocation Model, Why Marriage in America is Becoming an All-or-Nothing Institution, outlined the history of marriage, its purpose, and what people expected of it across the history of the United States. And the record indicates that from about 1776, when the country came into being, until around 1850, most people had what researchers call an institutional marriage, which meant marriages that existed to formalize the distribution and sharing of resources like food, shelter, and security. From 1851-ish until around 1965, marriages became what the researchers called companionable, which meant post-industrial revolution, more people had leisure time to spend on socializing and flirting and dating, and as a result, more people were interested in spending their lives with someone they actually liked, as opposed to someone who was a good fit in terms of resource distribution. So the earlier model of marriages being a pure economic arrangement gave way to a system in which it was still that, but it was also often meant to be an economic arrangement with someone that you thought was attractive or intelligent or who you otherwise just didn't mind spending your time with. 1965 onward is when the modern conception of marriage emerged, and what has shaped this version of the institution is the idea that marriage is a component of individual personal fulfillment and self-expression. And this is something that partially emerged as a consequence of an increasing sense of individualism, especially amongst the middle class post-World War II. And this sense was fanned into a larger and larger, meaningful-seeming thing by brands that wanted to sell us on the idea of an ideal lifestyle, one that involved the right car, the right house, with the proper white picket fence, the right products to own and consume, the right partner with whom we would have the right kids, buying them the right products, feeding them the right foods, and so on. Now, none of this is meant to imply anything about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of marriage. Partnerships that work are partnerships that work, whatever the nature of those partnerships. And that there are so many happy marriages around the world is a testament to just how successful and fulfilling and relatively flexible this model can be. Something clearly works pretty well with this way of organizing people overall, or it probably wouldn't have stuck the way that it has, regardless of how entrenched it was by the government and other economic interests. That said, the idea that marriage is somehow natural or necessary, and that it's the only legitimate place to eventually land with a partner, is simply not backed up by history or by science. The marriages of today are a lot friendlier to our wants and needs than marriages of the past, in part 
because women can actually get out of them and are less likely, in some countries at least, to need them to be functioning parts of society. But they are nowhere near the only functional models of procreational, professional, or resource distributional human organization. Now that said, the correlation between women's rights and divorce rates are strong. As more people gain more equal legitimacy and power within a society, we tend to see more and more varied relationship models flourish beyond the bounds of traditional institution-backed marriage. And that implies, though we can't say for certain due to a lack of causatory data, that perhaps as people become empowered, they also become more likely to aim for relationships that serve their actual needs, rather than relationship models that serve the needs of some using a template that works pretty well on average, but which isn't anywhere near perfect or even necessarily desirable for a great many people. Interestingly, the concept of the nuclear family, a husband, a wife, and their kids living together in a house, is also a relatively new invention. There was a piece in The Atlantic recently, entitled The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake, a piece with a clear editorial point of view on the matter, but which did a good job of outlining how this model became normalized as well. The nuclear family was partially the result of the Industrial Revolution, as those living in rural areas left home to work in industrial centers, and they would then start new satellite families away from the family that they grew up with. This model, with new families starting from nothing in new locations, due to the centrality of factories and cities and so on, and the availability of work and opportunity in these hubs, compared to back home, became the dominant family setup in the industrialized world by the beginning of the 20th century. The contrast here, by the way, because I know it's not necessarily obvious in an age so heavily influenced by this family model, was the version of home life that shaped much of the rest of human history, which was to have several generations living in the same house or within the same neighborhood so that grandparents were living with or near their grandchildren cousins with cousins, and the whole clan, however big or small, being born and living and dying in the same town, potentially in the same home, a model that has a lot of benefits and which is beginning to receive renewed attention now for reasons ranging from the economic to the psychological to the purpose-related, people rethinking their careers, their ambitions for their relationships and family life, and in many cases, the tools and infrastructure available that allow more of us to live away from central population hubs, to live with or near our families elsewhere. Again, this does not imply that the dominant family organizational model to which we primarily adhere today, especially in the wealthier Western world, the nuclear family, is horrible or in some way latently flawed. But it's important to recognize that it is not natural in any sense of the word nor was it destined or an inevitable evolution of what came before. It is one model that we've used, that we started using relatively recently, and it has served some purposes. It is optimized for some outcomes. But it's not the only possible way of doing things, nor is it the only norm that we have seen across geography or time. At milestone moments, both in our personal lives and societally, when everything is up in the air, a lot of our norms bruised or broken, it's valuable to take a long look at those norms and reassess their virtues, their downsides, and to consider the alternatives that might be available. 
those that have long existed alongside the mainstream choices that we make, but also the new options that may have recently become available because of new ways of thinking or new tools that we just recently began to wield. It's perfectly legitimate, in other words, to question essentially every facet of the way that we do things, from the foundations up. And it's possible that we will realize, as we do, that the normal conventional ways of operating make a lot of sense, despite being flawed. It's also possible that in some cases, we may find that the rationales underpinning long-held traditions and models no longer apply, or no longer apply as strongly, or no longer apply to us personally, and our needs and priorities, and that although there would be costs associated with changing these things, it's perhaps prudent to consider doing so. This is the same norm-challenging process that's led to the many and varied efforts to change car-related policies in cities around the world, to close down streets to automobile traffic entirely or almost entirely, and to make way for more pedestrian and cycling infrastructure and more mass transit, to use the pandemic shutdown as an opportunity to make such investments and changes, to utilize this situation, which has upended many facets of everyday life, which has cleared the streets mostly or entirely of cars in many cities as an opportunity to rethink things and to actually act upon what we discover rather than simply thinking about how nice it would be to be able to make these changes before acknowledging that it's unlikely to happen. The difficulties of implementation outweighing the initial benefits of making that change. Now, it's anyone's guess as to whether we will see similar efforts when it comes to other aspects of life. It's arguably a lot easier to make adjustments, even fundamental ones, to a nation's energy or transportation infrastructure than it is to change interpersonal and societal norms. What we might see, though, are tweaks to the laws and regulations underpinning some of these norms, with new rights and benefits granted to non-married couples, and even single people, that are currently reserved for the more governmentally desired class of the married. This wouldn't change much of anything overnight, but it could, along with other changes to how society operates, slowly but surely shift our priorities so that they're more welcoming and beneficial to people who do not fit perfectly within today's relationship-related legal and social structures. book that I'd like to recommend today is called Golden State by Ben Winters. This is a novel about a country, or a nation-state, I guess, that exists within a post-apocalyptic United States, and within this world there are people who are able to sense when other people tell lies. And within this nation-state, it is illegal to tell any kind of lie. And that has shaped everything about the government, everything about society, and it is implied that this was an effort, this structure, to avoid another cataclysm, which, it is also implied, was caused by a United States in which nobody was able to tell what the truth is anymore. Reality became subjective, and as a consequence, something happened that led to this world that they live in now. It's a fairly compelling and interesting premise for a book. The writing is fairly strong. 
Enough so that I started reading another book by the same author shortly after finishing this one. So if you're looking for an engaging story that is speculative science fiction, but not in the spaceships and lasers way, it's more of a character-driven novel set in an interesting speculative scenario, consider picking up a copy of Golden State by Ben Winters. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcripts for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Brain Lenses or at brainlenses.com. And you can find some of my other writing at my blog, which is at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.